Uh, welcome if it's your first time or two here at uh, New Life Christian Center, and uh, we're glad that you're here. We don't think it's by accident. Uh, I, I guess we don't think it's by accident, unless maybe you like had a flat tire and had to pull in the parking No, that's not even by accident, is it? We've talked about this a thousand times. Um, it's not by accident that you're here. Uh, I think that God brought you here. I think that there's a purpose in that. I think that when God brings his people together, even to the lowest common denominator of just a couple people, uh, the word says that where two or more are gathered, he's right there in the midst, and we believe that that's true here as well. Amen? Amen. Well, Second Peter, we've jumped into, last week was our first week in the book of Second Peter, and uh, we didn't get all the way through chapter 1, but I wanted to remind us of a couple of things, and that is, is that Second Peter is really Peter's farewell address to this network of churches throughout the Roman Empire. Um, and it was written in a time, like I've just been describing, with a ton of cultural pressure, with a ton of, of cultural uh, uh, tension, as it were, especially for the Christians, because it was written during the reign of the Emperor Nero. And uh, if you know church history, and we've talked about it in the, in the first Peter um, part of this series, and you can go back online, uh, you can jump on and listen to the podcast if you wish, um, you can jump on our website if you wish and look at, listen to some of those previous messages, um, you will know that Nero, I mean, that we, there was a string of emperors in Rome that were just terrible. I mean, they were... They were beyond bad leaders. And Nero was like at the top of that list, I think. Uh, and so, so he had an in for this brand new belief system called Christianity. He was trying to stomp them out, trying to destroy them, trying to ground them into the dirt. It was this all-out uh, barrage, if you will, to persecute, to marginalize, to pressurize in an attempt to crush and destroy the Christian faith. And the more that that happened, the more that that happened, that, that pressure acted like fertilizer in the church. It was like pouring straight nitrogen right in the ground, and up came these churches, up came these believers, started to grow, started to mature, started to affect the people around them, started to affect their families, it started to affect their marriages, it started to affect every aspect of people's lives, and they... And it didn't stop growing. In fact, it grew even greater and greater. And it was in kind of that context that Peter's writing these two epistles. And the second one really is his farewell address. Peter has been imploring them to stand fast in the face of this persecution and to keep their focus on the only one that can carry them through. To keep their focus on the only one, the only person that can carry them through these difficult times. A couple questions for us. Of course, that's Jesus, uh, if you're filling in some blanks. Um, wasn't the president, definitely wasn't the uh, emperor. Uh, they didn't even have a say in that at that time. But a few questions as we get started. And I think it's good that we write a few questions up to, uh, to kind of stimulate some thought. Um, Here's one question. When we're pressed for time, how and what do we communicate as our most important message? How and what do we communicate when we're, when we're like, when we know that time is, 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 is of the essence? When we know that there's just a minute or two, what are you going to say? How are you going to communicate to people? This is some of the mindset that Peter had because he knew his time was kind of drawn short. If you knew that you had limited time and availability, what would that message be? It's a similar question. Or maybe there's this one. How can what we communicate be, more, be most effective for future generations? How can, what, how can our message be for the kids that we're raising, for these young people, the youngest ones just headed downstairs, how can we make that message more effective if we knew, if you knew that there was limited time, how would you communicate more effectively? How would you communicate more succinctly? How would you communicate in a clearer way that left no doubt as to what the most important things were on your mind? This is kind of into the mind, if you will, of Peter a little bit. He knows that his time is short, and we're going to get into that in this passage today. He knows that his 
Time is short. So he does what any of us, or I hope most of us would do. He communicates the most important things. He says those most important things. We've looked at a couple last week. We looked at this idea that uh, the most important message that he has, the gospel of Jesus, the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection is the message. 1 Corinthians 15, it's a great read for that. It's a nice, uh, tight way to, uh, to explain the gospel. We looked into this idea of grace and peace as Peter starts out this second epistle. And he talks about peace, grace and peace be multiplied to you. And we had that phrase that if you don't have the grace, you're not going to have the peace. Right? Like the two go together. They're not, they're not separated in that way. Some of the low, most unpeaceful people I know are actually some of the least gracious. The least gracious. And so we should be gracious and we should be, live a peaceful life that is attractive to the people around us. A couple other things that we looked at is this idea of we're partakers in God's work. We're partakers in God's work. We just uh, went through um, several months ago the Experiencing God study, and one of the main points that the Blackabees make in that is look and see what God is doing. Look around you and, and, and see where God is moving. Look around and see where God is working and join Him in that work. He calls us to join Him in His work. Not that we get, you know, somehow we can finagle a blessing or we can, you know, conjure up a blessing for him to bless what we're doing. We're to look around and see, hey, what's God doing? How's God moving? How's God stirring people's hearts? How's God working in a community? How's God working in a, in a church and in a family and uh, in marriages? And then engage in that work. You know, jump into the middle of that and say, all right, Lord, I'm, uh, you know, I'm willing. I'm willing. Like Isaiah, <laughs> here am I, send me. Didn't even know where he was going. That wasn't part of the game plan yet. But he was immediately willing when he's face-to-face with God. Actually, he's flat on the ground before God. But he's in God's presence. He's experiencing God in that way. And he's willing to go and do whatever God wants him to do, regardless of the assignment, because he knows that what God is doing is greater than anything that he could muster up. So we partake in God's work. We also get to partake in God's divine nature. We see here in Second uh, Peter chapter 1. We get to be a part of God's divine nature with His divine characteristics and work according to His divine power. And we get to participate. We get to partake in His divine and precious, He calls them, Peter calls them precious promises. Precious promises. If you look throughout First and Second. Peter, really, you'll see that word precious pop, pop up time and time again. I don't know how many P words that I can say. Uh, this sermon brought to you by... Uh, who? By the letter P. There we go. No, we get to participate. We get to, to receive, as it is, God's precious promises for His people. There's another... You guys see how I did that? That was pretty good, really. Today we're going to kind of uh, keep moving through the text, um, and we're going to get down to some nuts and bolts. We're going to get down to the part that really, in the everyday grind, can get really monotonous if we're not careful. It's the part of our Christian walk that can be uh, easily forgotten because we're looking for the, the high points. It can be the part that, you know, every, everybody loves... That one-handed touchdown grab in the back of the end zone, you know, barely up on two toes, right? Everybody loves that part, but nobody enjoys the part that we're going to get into as it results to our Christian faith. So hang tight, we're going to jump in there. And then the second part of today's deal is is that we're going to look at this idea of not being fooled by false teachers and false narratives. Let's dive right on in. If you have your Bibles, or if it's up on the screen, or if you have your cell phone, and open your Bible app, not Facebook, turn to Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Oh, I'm sorry. Verse 12. Second Peter 1, 12. 
I'll read a few verses and we'll talk about it. For this reason, Peter says, For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent to stir, up, <clears throat> to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent just as the Lord Jesus showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. Uh, there's three words I want you to circle in that passage if you like to write in your Bible or underline or highlight or however you want to do it. And that's any of the three forms of the word remind. He says it three times in just a couple of verses. He says remind. I want to, I want to remind you. Uh, I'm reminding you. I'm giving you a reminder. When an idea is uh, repeated multiple times in a passage, we ought to really take note of that. And Peter is steadfast in the importance of knowing the truth. He says, I will not be negligent. I will not be. In other words, he's making a definitive statement about his own ministry. He's making a definitive statement about who he is as both a, a bondservant, as, as Simon Peter, kind of that he gives himself this descriptive language in the first verse of this chapter, and he gives, he's adamant about it as an apostle as well, and he says this. He says, I'm not going to be negligent, if I can put a little vocal emphasis on it. And it's football season, strangely enough, in February, so I'm really getting my big voice back, and I'm kind of liking it. Peter says, I'm not going to be negligent. I'm going to share with you exactly what you need to know. So leave no doubt. After I'm gone, there will be no doubt as to what the message is. There will be no doubt as to what the emphasis is for the Christian life. He said, so it's not going to be on me. I'm not going to be negligent. I'm going to do everything I can possibly do to share the most important things before I'm out of here. Because Jesus said, I'm going to be out of here. So he says, I'm not going to be negligent. I'm going to handle my business. I'm going to use every ounce of leverage in a good way that I can. I'm going to use whatever authority Christ has given me in a good way to make sure that you have all the tools that you need. So I'm not going to be negligent. I'm going to give you, and he uses this word, reminders. 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 Peter is stressing this idea that forever forward, until Christ returns, that we should have reminders of the fundamentals of the faith. Fundamentals. The basics of the faith. The basics of the faith. As I said, we started football practice here a week ago. And so we go through, painfully go through, the fundamentals. The footwork. We do it every day. We do the the handwork, we do the, you name it, if it's a basic part of playing football for these kids, we go through those fundamentals, we call them our everyday drills, and you can take that title and lay it on top, or mix it in with your faith, and say that we all should have everyday drills that we should do as Christ followers, because they're the fundamentals of the faith. And if you interview, or if you listen to an interview of any of the big league dudes, any of the, the pro basketball guys, the pro football guys, anybody that's a professional athlete of any sort, they're going to tell you that the thing that got that one-handed grab up on the tippy-toes in the back of the end zone wasn't because they took ballet. It was because they did the fundamentals of football thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of times to get to that one play. That's how serious they took it. They say that great hitters are in the cage all the time hitting. Right? Great quarterbacks throw thousands and thousands and thousands of passes a year. Great shooters in basketball, and I have a quote by Michael Jordan, great shooters in basketball shoot thousands and thousands and thousands of shots all the time. Michael Jordan says this, he says, you can practice shooting eight hours a day, but if your technique is wrong, then all you become is a very good at shooting the wrong way. Get the fundamentals down, and the level of everything you do will rise. Get away from fundamentals, and the bottom can fall out of your game. Your schoolwork, your job, 
whatever you're doing. So we can do a lot of things wrong and get really good at doing a lot of things wrong. And I think to a degree, the church has done a lot of things wrong over time. And I think that God is stirring and moving and, and, and pruning and refining the church into this concept. Not that God's following Michael Jordan. I think God was at this work long before Michael Jordan existed. But he's into this deal. We've got to get it right. And you've got to do it repetitively. The fundamentals. The fundamentals. They say that Michael Jordan shot uh, 5,000 shots a day. That's a lot of shooting. That is a lot of buckets. Right? They say that the big league hitters like uh, Albert Pujols, great Christian man, uh, different guys like him, that they're in the cage. They're, they're taking batting practice five, six hours a day, even in the offseason. When they're not in the batting cage, they're lifting weights. When they're not on the basketball court, they're lifting weights. When they're not on the football field practicing. And, and, and it is, I want to tell you guys this, it is tedious. Actually, I meant to bring, uh, why don't we bring that back? Um, I was kind of blessed with a gift years ago. Um, my sister-in-law, Tammy's older sister, used to work in a bat factory where they made maple hardwood bats for major league players. And uh, we got to tour the bat factory and uh, <clears throat> so we're kind of, you know, coming in. And on this long wall were these, uh, all of these names. And uh, all of these, uh, underneath the names were all of the dimensions of the bats. And a replica of those uh, bats made to those specifications. And so, oddly enough, um, there was a couple in the trash can... I was like, oh, what about these? You know, you know me. Oh, what about these? And I pulled it out, and it was an Adrian Beltre bat. I was like, why are... I asked my sister-in-law, I said, why are these in the trash can? Can I have these? There was two of them. I said, can I have these bats? She's like, no, we, we can't do that. I'd have to ask my boss, but I'm sure he'll say no. And uh, I said, why are they in the garbage, though? And Debbie told me, she says, that bat, the handle of that bat is like uh, just a few millimeters too big in diameter for his grip. That's how sensitive, when they're up there doing their thing, that's how sensitive they are at their craft, at their game. That's how tedious they get when it comes to these small things. And so, uh, anyway, so we kind of went on the tour, and it was great to watch these bats be made, and they're right on them and all the thing. But... Uh, a couple weeks later, after we got home, a package showed up, and I was like, oh. There was two bats of, that were Adrian Beltre's, so they're kind of, uh, they're his reject bats, I get it. They're not the ones that he, well, I don't know. He, he tried them out and he sent them back, I guess, so who knows. But the reality is, is that, that, that that's, how, that's how intricate they are to the details if you watch these guys warm up, we got a chance to go over a couple years ago and watch Seattle play the Kansas City Chiefs. And we got there early enough to, to really get down. You're just, you're just like, what, four or five feet above the field, that bottom deck, and watching them warm up. And those big guys, you know, they're, just, they're working on just these steps. Like, they just perfect it, and they perfect it, and they perfect it, and they perfect it. And they perfect it because the fundamentals for them of the game is what makes the difference in a championship season. And the same dynamic, the same dynamic is true for you in your faith. The same thing is true for you and I as Christ followers. And Peter's saying, hey, I'm here to remind you. I'm here to remind you. He says it three times. I'm here to remind you of the basics. I'm here to make sure that this basic foundation of your faith is rock solid. And there's a reason why he does that. Uh, there's actually a piece that, that goes with that. He says, though you know and are established in the present truth, verse 12. Though you know and are established in this present truth. That word established is the same word that's used by Jesus in Luke 22. Verse 32, where, Jesus, where it says this, it says, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, so Jesus talking to Peter, said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you 
as wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you've returned to me, strengthen your brethren. That idea of Jesus saying, hey, Peter, here's your job. Your job is to strengthen the brethren. And that's the same exact Greek word, to be established in this present truth. Peter's taking that command that he had from Jesus all those years ago, and he's planting it right here in in chapter 1 of the second epistle, and saying, I'm doing what I was told to do, and I'm going to continue to do that as long as I'm here. As long as I'm here, this is my job. Just like a good coach, always going over the fundamentals. Jesus gave Peter this specific job description to strengthen the brethren. And the outcome of Peter's ministry and the confidence that he had was based on the church being established in Jesus. His confidence was in Christ that this was going to come true. And it was established by these constant reminders of what he calls this present truth. This present truth. Then Peter uses kind of a uh, different direction. I'm not sure if I could have pulled this off, but he kind of uses the I'm going to die card. Kind of like, I'm going to die card. So listen up. I've got a few things to say, but just know this. He says, yes, I think it's right as long as I'm in this tent to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly... I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus showed me. Peter's reminding them that he has a destiny to fulfill, that they have a destiny to fulfill, and that as long as he's got breath, as long as there's, there's, there's air in his lungs, and as long as he has a pulse and a voice to say, he's going to continue this out, continue his ministry out. And that all the people that would hear these words, including us here today, are partakers in that. We're partakers in this very thing right here today. And he knows that his time is short. Jesus told him that he would be in a position to live and to die for him. And historians tell us, church historians tell us about those events. Historians tell us that Peter's wife was crucified the day before him. And the last communication they had was all about Jesus. Keep your eyes on the Lord. And Peter died the next day. And at his own request, church historians tell us that Peter said, I I, I can't even die like Jesus died. So turn this thing upside down. I'll hang upside down. But nobody's going to put me on par with who, who Jesus is, even in death. I won't stand for it. And so at his request, yeah, he was crucified upside down. He knew that it was going to happen. He was passionate, passionate to share that message. One question I have inserted in my notes, and maybe it's as much for me as anybody, is this. Are we willing to walk that same path in the days that we live in? Are we willing to walk with this passion and intensity, this drive, knowing that, that we don't know when our last day is? Knowing that, hey, death rate's 100%. Forget about the pandemic. Everybody's going to die, right? Everybody's going to die. Josh had a conversation with this lady when he's at work this year, and she's panicked about dying. She's panicked about dying. Josh in his tender way <laughs> says, hey, 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 everybody's going to die. You are going to die. Can I encourage you? Can I encourage you to think about a few things? Meanwhile, she was throwing the shots back. The reality is, is that we are all going to die. What's going to be our message? What's going to be our legacy? What are you leaving behind for the people that are, that are left? What message are, are, are we sharing today that's going to have an impact for generations? We talk a lot about having generational impact, leaving a legacy. Peter's leaving a spiritual legacy here that we're all, we all get to share in. It's awesome. 
It's great. And he didn't shy away from the truth of what was going to happen. Are we willing to walk that same path that Jesus asked us to? As David read as part of the announcements, John 3.16, he didn't know that this was in my notes. He didn't know that the reality is, is that God loves the world and is determined. If you don't get anything else today, get this, get this, uh, this idea. God loves the world and is determined to rescue it. He loves people so much, he is determined to rescue those uh, in the world. When I say the world, I'm talking about the people. He loves the world so much and is determined to rescue it. And that rescue mission of God is a confrontation with sin and every evil practice that opens up a new way for a future. Do you guys get that? Let me read it one more time. God loves the world and is determined to rescue it. That rescue mission of God is a confrontation with sin and every evil practice, and that opens up this new way for a new future. Are we willing to jump in and join God in that work? Are we willing to do that? I think it's a fair question. It's a question I have to ask myself. Mark, are you willing to confront sin in your life? Are you willing to confront evil? If there's evil, any evil, are you willing to confront it when you're made aware of it? Repent. Walk away from that and keep walking towards Jesus. Because that's God's way. That's God's work in a big way. And it applies in really, really, really specific areas for us. That's why we all have to dig inside of ourselves, see what doors are kind of locked to the Holy Spirit and which ones aren't. That's why we've got to examine ourselves. That's why we have to be in relationship with one another because sometimes I need a brother to tell me, hey, hey, you're off. This isn't right. And in that moment, do I have an opportunity to see the truth and to, reply and to respond to the truth? Or I can keep walking in blindness and deception. So we need one another in that sense as well. But we have to be willing and open and transparent about our own lives, about our own uh, issues, about our own sin, let's call it what it is, and then move forward. And a lot of the problems, I think, that are in our culture today and in the church today is we don't have a lot of that activity happening. Let's be honest about that. That's what we need to be praying for. That's what we need to be seeking. That's what we need to be promoting. That's what we need to be demonstrating. That's what we need to be doing as Christ followers is being real and honest and open. And then responding as God leads us out of those things and moving forward. The rescue mission of God is a confrontation with sin. Every evil practice... Men and women, this is our calling as Christ's followers. To join God in this work and His work. The great news is, is that we have His nature. We have His spiritual DNA as Christ's followers. Impossible to accomplish without any of that. Impossible to even start to engage in confronting sin without the Holy Spirit in our lives. Not going to happen. Oh, I know people that have good moral habits that aren't Christ's followers. I think we all know that. I think we all know people that are in that mode, that, that they live a good, clean, we would call culturally clean life. They're the types of people that when you're sharing Jesus, say, oh, I never, I, never, I never killed nobody. Because not killing somebody is like the thing, you know? The reality is, is without Christ and without them turning to Christ, without them repenting of their sins and trusting Jesus' finished work on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection, those good, nice, moral people are not going to partake in eternity. That's the reality. We've got to lead the charge, people. We've got we to be the tip of the spear when it comes to these things. And it happens through the fundamentals. It happens through the everyday conversations. It happens through learning verses, uh, memorizing the word. It happens through then applying those memorized verses into everyday life. Joining God in his work with his nature 
and it happens according to his power in our lives. A large part of that work is reminding one another, strengthening one another, encouraging one another. All of the one another's that you will see throughout the New Testament, they apply for all of us to this end. Do, do we understand that? All of the one another, you can, you can I, I'll print them off for you. You can take all of that list of one another's, all of those encouragements of how we should relate with one another, how we should interact with one another, how the church should function, all of that, how marriages should work, how families should work, all of that, all of that leads to this end. It all leads, it all points to this end. It all points to joining God in His work. And a big part of that is dealing and confronting sin in our lives and responding to it appropriately. There's another piece to this passage. Because in the book of um, 2 Peter, there's, there's kind of three, um, especially kind of from this point forward, there's kind of three points that Peter wants to touch up because he knows his time is short. He knows that, uh, that there's some things that are out there that need to be addressed. There's some things that are out there that are, that are not right. They have a tilt to them. They have a cultural tilt to them. Uh, and so he's going to say, nope, I object to that idea. That's not true. And then he's, a little bit later, he's going to say, hey, no, that's false teaching. That's a false narrative in our culture. That's not true. And so let's dive into look. We're just going to look at the first one today because that will close out chapter 1. Let's read on. I'll give you the myth number one in advance. You can pick it out. The myth number one is this, is that the apostles made up these stories about Jesus. Now, this has a root going clear back to uh, <clears throat> going clear back to the end of the Gospels and the storyline of Christ and the resurrection and all the oh my goodness, somebody pushed this gigantic stone out of the way and there's no body. And the Romans started to panic and the Jews started to panic and everybody was panicked. The only people that weren't panicked were the disciples because they had already kind of filtered out anyway and decided to go fishing. And there's nothing more relaxing than fishing. Let's be frank about that. Maybe being in a tree stand uh, would be on par with that. But everybody else was panicked because there was no body. They'd never seen that before. They'd never heard of that before. So there's no body in the tomb. And somebody pushed that rock out of the way. So what's going on here? So they, you can kind of trace this back into that part of the storyline they started to make up stories, but the reality is, is this myth had continued clear to Peter's day here, and that myth is that the apostles had made up these stories. So Peter's going to wade right into the deep water. He wants Christ's followers to know the truth, to be able to understand the truth, and to be able to communicate the truth. And he says in verse 16, he gives a straightforward answer. He says, For we did not follow cunning, cunningly devised fables, when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word fables there is the, the word that we get the, uh, the Greek word mythos, where we get the word myth. So we didn't follow these cunning myths or, or, or these fables, he says, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. That's his reply to this myth that's out there culturally, that's being circulated about the the Christian faith in that first century. Saying, ah, they're just, those guys, it's a bunch of Dr. Seuss stories. No. No, he says, that's not it. We were there. We were there in person. So we saw, we were eyewitnesses to who Jesus is. Eyewitnesses to his majesty. Verse 17, he explains that because I know as I was reading through, and I'm sure in your mind, perhaps, you're thinking, sure, they saw the resurrected Jesus, which is true, which may be a part of that, but that's not the example that Peter gives. Verse 17 says, For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came from him, from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed which you do well to heed as light that shines in a dark place 
until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing, that, <clears throat> knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is, as, is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved on the, by the Holy Spirit. Peter's really careful here to dispel this false narrative with two points that are kind of connected together. Two points that are kind of connected together. The first one's in verse 17 and 18. The second one's 19 through 21. But the first one is, is that he uses his own experience of seeing Jesus exalted. He's saying, I, I, I've seen who Jesus really is. I've seen who Jesus really is. Not in the, not in the, uh, the earthly way, but I've seen him how the heavens see him. I see him how eternity sees him. I see him, I've seen him how God the Father sees him, and I've heard the voice. And I wasn't the only, he wasn't the only one either. The second thing he uses to dispel this is the accuracy of the Old Testament prophets in pointing to Jesus. Let's look at the first one, verse 17 and 18 is Really, uh, Peter remembers this account, and it's not a uh, resurrected Jesus account. Rather, it's the account on the Mount of Transfiguration, and it records what they, <clears throat> what they heard from the Father about the Son. And it's really found in, I picked the one in Luke chapter 9. Luke nine twenty-eight through 36 says this, Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. Talking about Jesus. Verse 29 says, And as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke, <coughs> uh, and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep, taking a snooze, and when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Then it happened as they were parting from him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, is it good for us to be here? Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. When the voice had ceased, Jesus, Jesus was found alone, but they kept quiet and told no one in those days of any of the things that they had seen. Quite an event. Uh, talk about waking up in a hurry. <laughs> talk about coming to your senses in a hurry. Peter, James, and Don, eh, it's a good time for a little rest up here. Jesus is doing his thing. They wake up and boom. There's Jesus uh, as he is in heaven. You know the only thing that's in heaven today? The only thing, there's, only, there's one thing in heaven today that's man-made. You guys know what it is? Some of you might know because I've already told some of you. Yep. There's only one thing in heaven that's man-made. And that's Jesus' scars. All the rest is all God created. And they got to see, they got to see Jesus as he's seen, as he really is, king of the universe, creator of the universe, the right hand of the Father, Jesus, minus the scars. And they got to see him spending time with two of the all-stars, Moses and Elijah, and Peter, in his classically, you know, foot-in-the-mouth kind of a way, he said, oh, well, maybe we should make some place for you guys to stay. Quick, let's make a bed and breakfast. In fact, we'll make three. And the response from the Father is really a rebuke to what Peter's saying. It's really a, sit tight, son. Let me tell you about who my son is. Take a seat, Peter. He said, this is my son. Peter includes this event, this eyewitness uh, uh, occasion, this 
just mind-blowing experience, he includes it all of those years later as a way of saying, hey, 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 you think we made this stuff up? No way. No way. Definitely not so we wouldn't make something up that we're willing to die for if it was all fiction. No, this really happened. And and Peter could give you thousands of stories. He could stand up here and talk to us about hundreds, thousands of events that were miraculous in nature. His, His own steps across the water. His own hands handing out food, and it just keeps multiplying and multiplying and multiplying, and, and there's just no end. He just keeps reaching in the basket, and there's just more. There's just more. Kind of like when I was a teenager going to Skipper's with my dad. Just keep going back for more. It's nothing like what those guys did. Why did I even bring that up? I just came to my mind. The reality is, is that Peter could tell a story upon story upon story upon story of real events. John says at the end of his gospel, he says, there's so many things that that pen and paper couldn't even put it all down. Couldn't even be held in a book. And Peter could, he could fill our days with these events because he was an eyewitness testimony. And he brings this one out as the first and foremost after over all that he had experienced following Jesus, he brings a rebuke. This should tell us about Peter and his willingness to be uh, uh, reprimanded and corrected by the Father. It really says something about his character to bring this out. This is the story that he chooses to say, hey, I'm an eyewitness. I'm an eyewitness. Uh, what's happened the next piece that he talks about is Peter also reminds us of the uh, Old Testament passage that key in on the Messiah verse 19 says and so we have the prophetic word confirmed that prophetic word came from down from Moses and Isaiah and Micah and Zechariah and many others that the Holy Spirit moved to protect, to <clears throat> excuse me, predict the Messiah's coming. There's at least 351 scholars believe there's about 351 uh, messianic passages that are prophetic in the Old Testament. 351. Uh, there's a guy, a professor, Professor Peter Stoner is his name, calculated the prob- probability of any one man fulfilling eight of these prophecies. That calculation is 10 to the 17th power if one man could fulfill eight of these prophecies. Uh, I'm not a math guy, but uh, that's 10 to the 17th power, 17 zeros behind it, 10 to the 17th power. Impossible. Oh, it's possible. Only with one person. That number in silver dollars would cover, they say, the state of Texas two feet deep in silver. Stoner says that if you consider 48 of the prophecies, so we haven't even gotten to half, you consider 48 of those prophecies, that it's 10 to the 157th power. Closer to impossible. But with Jesus, everything's possible. Nothing's impossible for him. The great consistency of biblical prophecy is actually really overwhelming, even if you look at it from a math standpoint. Peter lays out really three basic rules in this passage. I'll give them to you as we wrap up today. The first, uh, the first thing that he speaks of in regard to um, debunking this idea that it was all a myth the first idea about prophecy is that he says no one person gets the corner on the market of understanding. No one person gets the corner on the market of understanding. Look at verse 20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Nobody gets the corner on the market. In other words, the interpretation is to be understood broadly. 
It's not to be thrown out. That's not what he's saying. It's just saying that, that nobody has the, either the right, the ability, or the discernment to have a singular view all to themselves, private interpretation. No, it's to be understood broadly. That's why he's reminding them. These are the fundamentals. This is the reality. All of these things pointed to Jesus. The second one is, is that no individual forces God's hand. Verse 21. For prophecy never came by the will of man. You want to give God a chuckle? Tell him what you're doing. You want to make him laugh loud? Uh, tell him what he's going to do. <laughs> eh, that doesn't work that well. right? Nobody forces God's hand. Nobody cranks out the will of God according to their own ability, to their own thoughts, to their own words. Nobody forces God's hand in that way. That's not how these prophecies work. The third one is, is that God gives His message through His Holy Spirit. That's just why we have to be keyed in. This is why it's fundamental that we're keyed in in a relationship with Christ and a life by the Holy Spirit according to His power that we're tuned in to the voice of the Holy Spirit in our lives. God gives us message through the Holy Spirit when He says, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Some great takeaways right there for us. And Peter uses these three points, these three principles of understanding the Old Testament writers because there was a lot of getting it wrong throughout the Old Testament. There was a lot of misunderstanding of who Jesus was. The very people that should have known who Jesus was when he showed up, known who, who, <clears throat> what was going on as it was going on, the very people that were in charge of the religious aspect of, of uh, Judaism should have been the ones that started to say, hey, wait, wait a minute, this guy's, this guy's right on. But he didn't fit their paradigm. He didn't fit their picture of who the king was. He didn't fit their picture of the Messiah. They were looking for a physical rescue, and Jesus brought a spiritual rescue. That's why confronting sin and every evil practice is God's work in our lives. We stand around wanting a physical rescue a lot of the times from the things that are pressuring on, on us. We need the spiritual rescue of confronting sin and every evil practice in our lives. That's where we're at today. That's where we should be today. Some great takeaways if the worship team wants to come on up. I'll buzz through these three real quick. Our goal as believers, you and I, it's not just a church leadership thing, it's, an, it's a you and I, it's a one another statement here. Our goal is to encourage one another in these fundamentals of the faith. Constant reminders, constant reminders. Constant reminders in our life moves us closer it helps us be disciplined in our faith disciplined in our in our character it moves us closer i'm not saying it saves us we're already saved so in that saved position trusting christ as our savior our response is to then be disciplined and that discipline happens by being reminded on a regular basis yeah i'll say that with this caveat I hated to be reminded of stuff. I think we're all kind of similar in that way. I hated to be reminded. of this voice ringing in my ear from when I was a kid. It's coming from this direction. And it was a reminder. It was a sorry. Uh, <clears throat> you shouldn't sit so close to the front, Mother. Ah, it was a reminder of all the things that I should be doing. Because those things add value and are important. Those things will set the stage. Young people, you want to set the stage for your future? Absorb those reminders and keep working forward. Take that biblical teaching, keep applying it to our lives and keep marching forward as we follow Christ it's a good thing repetition is a good thing 
Encourage one another with the fundamentals of the faith, the reminders. No one can refute what God has done in your life. Nobody can take away from your testimony. Nobody can steal from your experience of who Jesus is and what he's done in your life. They might not understand it. They might not agree with it. They might not get it. They might walk away from the conversation. But nobody can refute how Jesus has changed you. That's what Peter's saying. I was an eyewitness testimony. Uh, I was an eyewitness to what was going on, and that's part of his testimony. I imagine those dark nights when after the three denials, he might have been thinking about that very event. It's like, man, I've seen all this stuff. I'm so ashamed of who I am for denying Jesus. I'm so ashamed. But it was those constant reminders turned the corner for him and put him right back in relationship with Christ. He couldn't walk away from it. He couldn't deny it. No one can refute what God has done in your life. They cannot refute your testimony. And the last one is, is God's word is God's word. This is his word. This isn't the things, this is what he gave us to study. God's word is God's word. And throughout the ages, this has been oppressed. This has been burned. They've tried to eliminate this from parts of, uh, uh, of our world. They try to deny it still today. They try to deny its, uh, relative, uh, how it, it, that it's relative to our lives. They try to deny its authenticity. They try to deny its historical value. They try to block it out in parts. And guess what? Just like in that first century, the church started to keep growing because all that persecution was fertilizer for them to grow. The places where this is denied the most is where people are growing the most and the gospel is being spread the most in our world. God will not be denied, neither will his word, and it will not return to him void. He sent it out, he's given it to us as a, as a manual, as a guide, as a word for life. It should direct every aspect of our lives from, from our own person to our marriages, to our families, into our community, church, so on and so on. God's word is God's word. He makes it stand through the ages. And if you knew you had limited time or limited availability to talk to somebody, would this be your message? Let's stand and worship our last song.